You're listening to In My Father's House with our pastor and teacher, Mike Fenizio, Senior Pastor of Harvest Christian Fellowship in New York City, New York. In my Father's house, there's a place for me. In my Father's house, where I long to be, oh, my heart will not be troubled. I remember what you said. They turn their back upon God and they walk away. I mean, think about it. Not only Saul's life was through his disobedience, was killed, but also his three sons. Not only his three sons, but all of the, uh, the men that were part of his bodyguards. There were 2,000 in all, but also the armies of Israel. Now, remember last time together we were talking about the far-reaching effect of sin. You know, when we choose to sin, it affects everyone around us, particularly our loved ones, right? The consequences of sin are harsh. At the extreme, it can result in eternal separation from God. But for those who are saved, they can still experience destruction in this life when they allow it to remain in their hearts. As Pastor Mike continues our study of the first chapter of Second Samuel, he'll draw our attention to the destruction we witness in the life of King Saul. This man went from being God's first anointed king of Israel to a dishonorable death in the midst of rebellion against God's will. Now here's Pastor Mike in the book of 2 Samuel chapter 1 as he continues his message, Life's Transitions and New Beginnings. I believe what the Amalekite had uh, told David was a contradictory uh, statement, a contradiction of the account that is recorded for us back in the previous chapter. In fact, let's quickly go back there for a moment. In 1 Samuel chapter 31, so just go back one chapter uh, in your Bibles to chapter 31 in verses 3 through 5. Let's read that. The battle became fierce against Saul. The archers hit him and he was severely wounded by the archers. So they, uh, Saul knew that he wasn't going to survive. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, who was present, draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised men, this was the way that he referred to the Philistines, the idea that, you know, recognizing that they were without a covenant relationship with God, remember it was through circumcision, uh, that represented Israel having a covenant relationship with God. So this wasn't a racial slur. This is just the way that uh, Saul refers to the Philistines as uncircumcised. So lest these uncircumcised men come and thrust me through and abuse me, but his armor bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. And so here we are told, notice, which is contradictory to what the Amalekite reported to David, therefore Saul took a sword 
and fell upon it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died with him. Okay, so let me, let me just suggest this. It may be possible. I don't know. You, you, you know. All of this is subject to our own understanding. We really, we're really not quite sure. It's open to speculation. It could have been possible that the armor bearer, uh, looking over the body, the motionless body of Saul, wasn't really dead. Remember, he fell upon his own sword and he took his own life, so he died. So in viewing Saul after he had been hit by uh, the arrows and then him plunging himself uh, through with his own sword, it may have been that Saul wasn't killed at all but only had fainted, which would have given some credibility to the story that the Amalekite had given to David. It is plausible. We really don't know. And as I mentioned, this is only open to speculation and interpretation. Let's consider the other possibility. Remember, I had said that there are two possibilities of actually how Saul had uh, died. If we do take the Amalekite story as true, as is recorded for us here in chapter 1 of 2 Samuel chapter 2, if we do take the Amalekite story as true, this is a very chilling statement indeed in revealing to Saul who he was. Remember, in his account, Saul asked him who he was, and he responded by telling him, I am an Amalekite. Now, remember, in a unique war of judgment, you know, previously, you know, going back several months in our series here in 1 Samuel, God had commanded Saul to completely eradicate the people of, Amalek, uh, of Amalek. And it's recorded for us, and I'd encourage you to read it sometime when you have a chance. 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 2 and 3. And uh, God had remembered how that the Amalekites, as God's people, had made the exodus out of Egypt, and they were traveling to the land of promise, the land of Canaan, how that the Amalekites pounded upon the weak and the elderly as they moved through the wilderness on their way to the promised land. And God remembered that. And so God was about to repay the Amalekites uh, for what they had done to uh, Israel. And so God had instructed Saul to completely eliminate, eradicate the people of Amalek. Not only for that reason alone, but they were a vile uh, people. Remember, uh, back then in, in, in our, our series in 1 Samuel, I gave you some background uh, information concerning the Amalekites and who they were. They were just a vile uh, people. And if they continued to exist, they, their, their sin would, would just permeate the entire world. You know, it was sort of like what had taken place during the days of Noah, where God had to step in and intervene on, on behalf of Noah and his family, lest the entire world be just riddled and, uh, entirely with uh, sin. And so he had to destroy the earth to start all over again. So that was one of the reasons why the Amalekites, uh, Saul was commanded by God to completely destroy uh, the Amalekites. They were a vile people. You know, one of their practices in worshiping their uh, gods, they would take their newborn children and they would place them upon the altars that were, uh, that were uh, uh, consecrated unto the gods that they served, and they were burnt there upon the altar, if you can imagine that. They were a vile, vile uh, people. 
So anyway, God commanded Saul to completely eradicate the people of Amalek. And again, you can read about that in 1 Samuel chapter 15. But Saul failed to do this. And what did he do? He disobeyed. He held back the best of the flocks and the cattle for his own and his own men. He held their king, whose name was Agag, hostage, looking for a big payday, a ransom. And so he identifies himself as an Amalekite. He was commanded by God to eradicate the people of Amalek, but Saul failed to do this. And an Amalekite, think about this, through his disobedience, it was an Amalekite, you know, if this record that's recorded for us here in 2 Samuel is true, it was an Amalekite who brought a bitter end to a tragic life. Now, why have I gone such a long way to make this point? Well, the Bible does not specifically say it, but Amalek is commonly regarded as an illustration or a type of our fleshly, carnal nature. We've talked about that, and you know, particularly in the Old Testament, there are these types, okay? They have dual meanings. And Amalek, or the Amalekites, uh, in those types, is commonly regarded as an illustration of our fleshly, carnal nature. For example, like our fleshly nature, think about it, Amalek focuses its attacks on the tired and the weak. You know, I, I found that, you know, I'm always at the weakest point in my own life, you know, when temptation provides an opportunity uh, for me, when I haven't been in the Word, and therefore I am weak. You know, I haven't been spending the time that necessary that I need to spend regularly studying the Word and in prayer. The sickly, remember, as I mentioned before, as the children of Israel made their way out of Egypt, the part of the Exodus, heading towards the land of promise. They preyed upon the weak and the elderly. And uh, so again, that's just another uh, example of this. So like our fleshly nature, think about this, Amalek focuses its attacks on the tired and the weak. When we are tired, when we are weak, at that weakest point in our lives. And you can read about that, by the way, as a cross-reference. I might encourage you to take these down if you're taking notes. Deuteronomy chapter 25 verses 17 and 18. Like our fleshly nature, it does not fear God, right? We take no thought of the repercussions, the results of the wrong choices and sin that we enter into. And so once again, like our fleshly nature, it does not fear God. Uh, God commanded a permanent state of war against Amalek, Exodus chapter 17 and verse 16. And this is even constant and present with us today. The Bible refers to it as this war between the flesh and the spirit. It's something constant that we have to deal with, right? Isn't that true? And uh, you know, look, just getting real, okay? I mean, this is something that we have to deal with every day of our, our lives. Don't you wish that upon our conversion experience, you know, we invite Christ to come. We're born again of the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit enters into us. We're empowered by the Holy Spirit. We're baptized in the Holy Spirit. And we never, ever have to, again, deal with temptation or sin, right? And, uh, you know, we just put on our super-Christian costume, and, you know, that's the end of it. But, folks, that's not the, the case. It's something that we have to continually deal with. That is our fleshly uh, nature. So the battle 
And then also the battle, like our fleshly uh, nature, the battle against Amalek is only one in the context of prayer and seeking uh, God. And so anyway, using this picture, we see Saul's failure to deal with Amalek as God had instructed him to do, to wipe them out, to eradicate them off of the face of the earth. Okay? Think about this in this type, in this analogy here. Using this picture, we see Saul's failure to deal with Amalek. Hey, listen, you better deal with your own fleshly nature and desires. Right? Or Amalek will come back and bite you. You can be sure about that. It will deal a deadly blow against you. And, you know, our fleshly desires, as God prompts us to deal with that. You know how that is. When God reproves us of our sin, you know, that quiet, small voice telling us that we need to get out of here. Don't open yourself up to that temptation. Don't yield to that temptation. Get out of there as quickly as you can. You know, look for help from another Christian. Uh, Enlist them in prayer. You know, all of the steps and the the wonderful resources that God has made available uh, to us so that we might be an overcomer. As the Holy Spirit prompts us, expect that area. If we don't do that, expect that area of the flesh to come back and deliver some deadly blows. Even as, right, this Amalekite dealt his deadly blow to Saul. So anyway, I wanted to pass that along uh, to you. And that was one of the reasons why I went a long way uh, to make uh, this point. Okay, well, anyway, let's go back to our text now and dig a little bit uh, deeper. Okay, so Saul is dead. Israel is leaderless. News is spreading throughout the land of the outcome of the battle. Uh, Ishbosheth, Saul's son, one of Saul's sons who didn't engage in this battle, is crowned king by Abner, who was the commander of Saul's army. And we'll read about that uh, next time together in chapter 2 in verse 8. And David at this time is still in Ziglag, far removed from the usual sources of information. And so our text tells us how David was informed of the results of the battle and Saul's death by this Amalekite. You know, it's also been suggested that two weeks have already transpired since Israel had been uh, decisively uh, defeated on the battlefield. So again, David just didn't know of the outcome of this uh, battle between Israel and the Philistines. Now, just a side note here. As this whole thing is developing, it seems as if the writer of this book of the Bible clearly wanted to portray David as having no part in Saul's demise. And then he also defends David's right to the throne as Israel's next king. You see, this Amalekite, who might have been a mercenary, who had joined forces together with the Philistines, again, it's open and subject to speculation. We really don't know much about this Amalekite who all of a sudden appears upon the scene. He may have been a mercenary. He might have been just a plunderer. You know, after the battle ensued, as I mentioned before, it had been a while. So maybe he just went back to where uh, Saul and the rest of the armies of Israel lied uh, dead there on the field, there within their 
uh, camp, and he just plundered the bodies. And uh, so we really don't uh, know. But anyway, this Amalekite, more than likely he was a mercenary, who seeks out David in Ziglag, announces by his uh, disheveled appearance, notice there in verse 2, and I believe that this was done purposely, uh, indicating he is the bearer of bad news. He tore his clothes and he put dust on his head. Saul is dead, indicating that Saul is dead. And I don't know if he was actually grieving for Saul or simply following the custom of his times. Possibly he was seeking David's favor. Again, he thought that David would reward him for bringing this news, that he would be pleased with the news that he had just received. Intimating he shares the grief of those to whom he is bringing this news to. Now, his attitude also implies that he recognizes David as Israel's new king. And how was that indicated? By giving him Saul's crown, notice, and bracelets. This was a demonstration and a show of loyalty. And again, possibly he was expecting to be compensated by David for this supposed loyalty. Well, anyway, notice David's response to this news. Okay, let's go back to our text now, verses 11 and uh, 12. Therefore, David took hold of his own clothes, and he tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son, for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. And so they showed their sorrow by lamentation, weeping, and fasting. Now, at first glance, you know, you read this account and you got to be amazed. I mean, think about it. When you consider for the last 10 years or so, Saul is David's enemy. And he's seeking to take David's life from him. So then that raises the question in my mind, why in the world would David be mourning for Saul's death? David is mourning, you see, for a life that is now ended, one that had initially been so full of promise. And he's just heartbroken. Why? Because he was thinking about what could have been. You know, Saul, if you think about it, if he would have just remained faithful to God, completely obedient to God, God would have used him to bring Israel to the zenith of its glory. But now we find that, notice, Saul is dead. All of his three sons are dead. Uh, all of the armies of Israel are killed. And now they find themselves in a very precarious situation under Philistine occupation. So how does this relate to you and to me? You know, I, I mourn when I hear news about, you know, someone who at one time was walking ever so closely together with the Lord, and then I find out that they had turned their back upon God, and they had gone back to their old ways, their old worldly ways, and they're no longer serving the, the Lord. And, uh, and occasionally you get the phone call, and they come back in, for counseling, and they begin to rehearse all of the terrible things that have gone on since they've turned their back upon the Lord. And I think about, you know, how 
many years. For some, it's been years. I've been involved in ministry now for a, quite a long time, almost 40 years in, in all. And I think about all of those years that had been wasted, all of the uh, blessings that had been forfeited just simply because of their disobedience unto uh, the Lord. They're no longer receiving God's best uh, for them. How? Because of their disobedience and giving themselves over to uh, sin. And they've suffered needlessly. You know, when you're just thinking about what could have been, they put themselves through that. You know, the only person that they can blame is them themselves. They turn their back upon God and they walk away. I mean, think about it. Not only Saul's life was through his disobedience was killed, but also his three sons. Not only his three sons, but all of the, uh, the men that were a part of his bodyguards. There were 2,000 in all, but also the armies of Israel. Now, remember last time together we were talking about the far-reaching effect of sin. You know, when we choose to sin, it affects everyone around us, particularly our loved ones, right? Like, for example, and I think I used this as an example last time, when a husband walks away from his wife and their, and their children, you know, the wife suffers. The children suffer. Now they're without a father who can provide for them. And, uh, and the, the wife and the children are scarred. You know, I wonder how many of us carry the scars of other people's sin in our lives. The results of the wrong choices that our parents have made. The scars that we carry around with us today. Oh, the far-reaching effect of sin in people's lives. You understand what I'm talking about? God help us. God help us. Well, notice here, though vassals of the Philistines, that is David and his men, their true identity, notice there in verse 12, has always been with the people of God. They're lamenting, they're crying, they're fasting. And then in verses 13 through 16, let's pick up now in this chapter. Then David said to the young man, the Amalekite, who told him, where are you from? And he answered, I am the son of an alien, an Amalekite. And so David said to him, how was it you were not afraid to put forth your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Uh-oh, this guy's in big trouble. Remember, on several different occasions, David had the opportunity to kill Saul to stop him from chasing him down to kill him. But he wouldn't do that. Why? Because he figured that would have been God's business to remove him. If God set him up as the king, then it was God's responsibility to remove him as the king. And so though David had several opportunities to kill Saul and put an end you know, to him trying to track him down to kill him, he would not put his hand. Why? Because he was God's anointed. Again, he felt as if you know, that would have been God's responsibility to remove him as king. In my father's house, there's a place for me. In my father's house, where I long to be. In the book of 2 Samuel, the king God anointed is finally on the throne. King David, the man after God's heart, is in the place God planned for him. Yet David is still human. And as you continue to study this book with Pastor Mike, you'll see that fact time and time again. David falls to the temptation of sin and reaps the consequences of his actions. But he does do one thing consistently. 
David repents when confronted and returns to the Lord. What an example of faithfulness and mercy. God forgives his chosen leader and restores the relationship that sin had broken. This same God is merciful to you, too, and his forgiveness is just as real when you come to him in repentance. Thanks for listening today to In My Father's House. You can explore more of these messages by searching for In My Father's House with Mike Venizio on your favorite podcast platform. And be sure to subscribe. If you're looking for a place in Midtown Manhattan to come together with others and worship Jesus, we'd love to have you join us this Sunday for worship at Harvest Christian Fellowship. You'll find directions and service times at harvestnyc.org. If this broadcast is an encouragement to you, would you consider supporting us? If you feel led, we're thankful for any financial support. In fact, you can donate securely on our website. Again, that's harvestnyc.org. Thanks for partnering with us in this way. That's all for today. Tune in next time for more on In My Father's House.